Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Although it is, it is uh, unbelievable. Like, so it's usually very rainy in Taipei in this mm. in the spring and summer, but it has been crazy. Like yesterday, there was like eight straight hours of thunderstorms, which which uh, uh, it's been it's been something else. So hopefully, we will, if you suddenly hear a downpour in the middle of this recording, you'll have to you have to excuse me. Those. Um, so I lived in Thailand for a year, and those. Uh, those tropical thunderstorms are one thing that I really, really miss. As long as I'm not having to ride my bike, um, man, <laughs> I'd I'd love to be there. Yeah, well, it, it, yeah, you say that it, it's because it sounds very romantic until you have to actually go somewhere, and even, even if you carry an umbrella, it's only functions to keep your head dry because everything else is just going to get totally soaked. I remember that too. It's almost like, in terms of how you get wet, it's like it's raining from underneath. First, your feet get sodden, and then your legs get sodden, and then it's up to your waist, and it slowly makes its way up your chest. Right. Well, you, you just have to accept it. Unfortunately, you're already soaked because it's so humid before it before the the downpour actually comes. So. Just just, just embrace it. Exactly. Um- it's it shif- it shifting the means of being wet. Right. Put the umbrella down and go with it. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, <laughs> I'm sure this is this is thrilling for our audience. Uh, mm. So we'll we, we move right along. Uh, so I mentioned on the podcast last week that I thought maybe my um, my article about TV and advertising was a little too ambitious. Mm. And so you decided to go for like Ben's universal economic theory of everything. Well, I, I figured I could make it feel less ambitious by being even more ambitious the following week. So it's all relative. This is true, but I feel like it's not a sustainable strategy because I don't know how you're going to top this one next week. Yeah, I, I mean, I was, I, I was, I finished. I was like exhausted. Even the next day, I was, I was still exhausted. Yeah. So it was funny because we originally uh, titled. Um, we titled the podcast "A New World Order," which I, I surreptitiously changed to the "The Old World Order," uh, <laughs> but after it was already downloaded, and everyone saw saw the podcast title and thought we were talking about Brexit because it came out the day after right. you know the, the the UK voted to in a non binding referendum, which is an important note to mm-hmm. to leave the European Union, and the markets are going crazy, and there was kind of a collective meltdown on Twitter uh, with everyone and. And so, but it wasn't about. It obviously wasn't about. Wasn't about Brexit at all, at least not directly. Uh, mm. And <laughs> yes, <laughs> mm-hmm. and anyhow, so so the so the Brexit thing comes down, and I kind of mentioned in, you know, the the uh, follow up in the, in the daily update that the reason I felt the that article last week was important, at least you know from f- as far as strategy is is concerned, is. It it felt like a, a certain sort of conceptual breakthrough, at least for me personally. And I mean, maybe no one agrees, but but from my perspective, it was. And, and that breakthrough was was you know instead of looking at these industries in isolation, you know, and and like I've done a lot of writing about advertising in particular, and and the difference between brand advertising and direct response, and which have moved to digital and which haven't, and when might they, and the opportunities for Facebook and Snapchat, and all these sorts of things, and. You know, and you think about advertising, it, like the. I know I'm reading some of my points, but but like the criticism of Facebook, like oh, they're doing like uh, app install ads, right? Well, when are they going to move past that? But if you if you back up, what's interesting about app install ads is they're uniquely suited for Facebook, right? It, it, and it's like a new industry yes. that is rising up alongside Facebook, and they're symbiotic. In, in, in that's not a that's not a bad thing. That's actually what you should expect. I think the I, this is often the case when 
uh, when the topic of disruption comes up, like things are dismissed as toys. It's like, oh, look, it's just doing um, uh, app install ads. But the the I think the interesting point is what you just mentioned then, which is it's it's rising alongside the rise of a completely new industry. And uh, for both of them, the existing assumptions have been washed away. And given that fact, given you're building something new, um, for on both sides of the coin, like they are uniquely suited to each other. And I think that's part of the reason they're both doing so well because it, they're so well suited to the current set of circumstances that we have. It's not just that they're suited. It's that they're only possible with right. each other, right? I mean, the whole thing with app install ads and the reason why they're a much more sustainable business than kind of the the common, the, the, the you know, the conventional wisdom thinks, and I think people are, are realizing this now, but is because they are so good at targeting and so mm. good at understanding what customers and, and like you know it's like Supercell like like probably the most successful mm. mobile game maker just sold uh to, to Tencent for like 10 billion dollars which was arguably relative to the prices for like King Digital and stuff like that cheap um they when they launch a new game like so they they will develop games for a long time when they launch a new game they'll launch it in like a single market like Canada's like one of their favorite markets to launch in mm. like it, it it's it is relatively similar to big markets but it's but it's a relatively self-contained small market like it's not it's not that big mm. um sorry Canada and, mm. and so they will they will launch it and then they'll iterate and test it and tweak it and figure out what works and sometimes they'll kill it like they've had a couple games that they've launched in one market and it just didn't work and they they'll throw away like a few years worth of work and restart. But uh, but usually, ideally, and they've only they only have like four games. Like they're they're much more. They've been very very disciplined and, and focused on this. And, and so they'll watch it and and they'll tweak it and figure out and get it just right. And then they go big and they go big on the back of of Facebook in particular. And they understand the sort of customers they need to reach, the sort of customers that are likely to convert to. To paying for it and stuff like that, and you could—I mean, you're the one who's actually played Clash of Clans, so you can you can talk to this. <laughs> Great like, memory. <laughs> no, well, no, but you talked about it. Like you, you, you have an affinity for these sorts of games, and and actually, your affinities are really too strong because you found them almost too shallow for you. But but the idea is they can figure out people like James Allworth who are into these games and and who who will pay for them, and and so they they the the thing with those app install ads is the ROI is very easily measurable because mm-hmm. you're going from digital on one side to digital on the other and you can tra- 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 track back yeah. and forth exactly how much it is and no one is losing money on these app install ads like the idea it's all vc money is is not true because the the what's so powerful about them is that you can be sure you're not losing money and, and this is in big contrast to doing a television buy or something like that where you can measure lift and you can measure brand awareness and these sorts of things but it's very very fuzzy the degree to which it converts but then again, if you're selling toothpaste, you don't like fuzziness is is okay. Like it, it's it's it, it, getting super focused is almost it's like a waste of capacity. Right. Now, I what was interesting to me was the uh, the nature of the comparison you drew between talking about these ecosystems being pulled together, the producers and the the producers and the the advertisers, and then drawing a similar comparison to what happened in. In Europe last week. Yeah, well, if, if you if you take this idea that that there's these symbiotic relationships mm. where where in the case of Facebook and app install ads and the various other products that are getting traction on Facebook, that that that's not just like that's an entire 
ecosystem that's going to rise rise and someday fall together and you have the same idea on the tv side that like cpg companies and the car companies and and, and tv that they're coming up together and the same forces that are disrupting them will bring them down like this idea that everything's interconnected and stuff goes up and down Mm. if you if you back that out and you like we've talked repeatedly on this podcast and i've written repeatedly it's been a theme from the beginning of strategy that the internet and its impact on business and its introduction of zero into like the most fundamental equations of business. And and they used to be that distribution is what mattered and scale and all these sorts of things. And now you have a world of, of no distribution costs uh, and, and the ability to be both Uber scale, uh, not, not Uber, the company, but u- u- like Uber, super duper scale or super duper niche. And both can, both can be viable strategies like that's going to fundamentally change things. It's going to change business in a very real way. But it follows if something as significant as like how we think about business is changing. The implication is everything else that's tied into business as it exists is necessarily going to change as well. I, I th- this notion of um so typically the way that analysis of industries is done is that you hold you hold everything else constant and you just look at the individual industry and this notion of like letting multiple variables rise and fall together and seeing how the industries affect each other as they do is super interesting but this uh to take the same approach um to liberal democracies or or societies in general where it, it, I mean, you think about the United States, if, if it would be, it's one of these things where it's widely acknowledged that um, enterprise and government are so tightly tied together. And it, it's maybe not as quite, uh, maybe not quite as tightly tied in a number of other liberal democracies, but it makes so much sense to look at the way these things intertwine and affect each other in the same way at a societal level, looking at the impact between government business and how that affects society in general. Well, well, I would argue that the government and business and the structure of business are intertwined in any company. And I'm not sure how you, country, sorry. I'm not sure how you would say that the United States is is more intertwined than, than other companies. I mean, you look at, not to get on a sidetrack, but you look at Europe. I mean, the, 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 intertwining of big corporations and government in a country like France for example is is far more enmeshed than than in the United States it's interesting i guess what i was referring to is the the i mean the common refrain who was the president that first was it uh, eisenhower that first referred to the military industrial complex yeah and may- maybe again i'm not an economic historian so i uh, i'm i'm probably shooting a little bit from the hip here but at least the common perception is that these uh that that, that the way that government and industry functions particularly since Particularly since World War II, they've been incredibly tightly meshed in the U.S. But I think your I think your point and your pushback is valid. It's something that happens across all societies. I would say that this is the case in any society uh, at any time in history. Like the the formation, like the formation of government and the structure of of business and industry are are intertwined. Like you can go back to like the feudal system. Mm. Like it is totally intertwined. You go to the industrial revolution and the move to cities and the rise of parliamentary d- democracy. Yeah, in like East the UK. India. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's fair. No, I, East I, India colonialism. Yeah. Like in colonialism was very much tied into the rise of trade, right? Like that was mm. a way to guarantee free trade if you if you just own the places that you're trading with. Mm. And, and like it's always been 
been enmeshed and intertwined and and the changes have have risen up together. I mean, the country, the the co- sort of companies that thrived in colonialism went down with colonialism. Like it, it's it's all the same sort of thing. Mm, yeah, I, I I think that is uh, that's an excellent point. So here's the here's the challenge, and here's kind of the the the, the starting point for this. And and I, obviously this was much broader than Brexit, but Brexit is is certainly I think a, a um, precipitating factor. Yeah, and it's a manifestation of some of the yeah. some of the factors here it is. Particularly in the in the sort of post World War tour, and there's lots of places you can draw these lines, but I think that's that's a useful one at least for this conversation. Like in the the world that we live in today, so much of it was formulated in those years. Hmm. This idea of there being there being a a deal between, for lack of a better word, between the government and and industry and and, and labor that the government keeps the peace, it, it it opens up the world for trade. Like the United States didn't. Pursue a colonialistic policy post World War II, but they certainly exerted their position mm-hmm. in world and dominance in the world to not just like the Marshall Plan was was brilliant and it, and it was an amazing thing for Europe. But make no mistake, there were strings attached. Right? It's like we will give you lots of money to buy products from us, and you better keep your borders open. And oh, by the way, we're, we'll protect you. Our military will keep you safe, uh, which will help our own industry because we we, we will pay to support it. And also, we don't want you guys arm me up again because we don't trust you to not kill each other. Oh, and in the meantime, the CIA is going to fund the organizations that are going to push for the European Union. Like, I mean, the United States was deeply enmeshed in the the push and formation of the European Union Uh, for both for the same political and economic reasons that the European Union like it was alignment of interest. Like, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like, the European Union is is not just an economic thing. And it's not just a political thing. It's both. It, it's to keep the peace, to, to unify Europe, to avoid the, the, you know, the, the terrible history, frankly, uh, of war and conflict, but also to, to promote trade and trade, like trade on balance is absolutely a good thing. 20th century history uh, is such an interesting thing because the the swing from relative isolationism that the United States pursued earlier that century to, I think, realizing as a result, particularly after the Second World War, that that approach wasn't going to work and that even even by the mid 20th century that no country was an island even even if you're on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, events will events can. <laughs> occur on the other side of the world that will drag you in and to see the other extreme or to to see the country take the other extreme was so fascinating but it was i would characterize those policies as being particularly successful and a big part of what caused the economics in the late 20th century to be as fast growing and as successful as they were for sure and and the other thing i mean just to focus on the trade point for a moment i think one th- one thing that the us you know in part part realized remember before world war 2 i mean it was the great depression and hmm. and all the all the ind- you know, industrialized countries in the world were, were suffering. But I think the U.S. also realized that, like, they needed the benefits of trade. And that was a huge opportunity for the U.S. industrial base, which was not bombed to oblivion and had all the U.S. size and natural resources and the fact that it's surrounded by, you know, there's oceans on either side and friendly countries top and bottom. To be basically the industrial base of the world was a tremendous opportunity. And the thing with trade, and, like, I will absolutely, I will I will defend trade before we get to the, the the problems that I I certainly wrote about, <laughs> there is the, the the reality of comparative advantage. It, like this is a 
this is like a, the world of fact, not opinion. The idea that even if I'm better at every single thing than than you, sorry, you have to be my counterpart in this example. Oh, how about the opposite? Even if you're better at every single thing than me, my God, Ben, where's this coming from? Stop it! Uh, I wasted it all on my ambition. Uh, so even if you're better at at everything than I am, for me to muddle along and do take care of all my needs myself, and you take care of all your needs yourself, that's that's suboptimal. It's better for you to do the thing that you're best at and me to do something else that maybe I'm not as good at you at, but relatively speaking, I'm better at. And then we can trade. Like, so I, I can grow vegetables and you can, you know, record podcasts or, or whatever it might be. And then we, like, we, we, there's an exchange and we, the net is better. It's really like, it really is two plus two equals five. Like that's actually the, what comparative advantage, advantage means. And it's, it's a very real thing. It's, you will get no argument from me about any of this, and I am as big a proponent of the concepts of trade as anybody, but uh, what you've just mounted is a a very rational argument using what, what to most people would be relatively complicated concepts, and I think what's interesting about this is that uh, when people, when it comes to things like Brexit or, or voting in a in a general presidential election, particularly if you're hurting, it's not the head that rules your vote. It's typically your heart. Well, it, it, it's your heart combined with, you know, some of the worst impulses. With, yeah, it's uh, emotional, right? Well, it, well, because like, so, so it's t- take trade, for example, like mm. the, 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 I mean, everyone supports trade in some, some sense, like unless you are living in a off in like the middle of nowhere and growing all your own food and taking all of your own interest in like no interaction with the outside world, you are engaging in trade, mm-hmm. right? If you went to the grocery store and bought food, like mm-hmm. that was, that's a, a perfect example of comparative advantage. It makes more sense for the farmer to grow a bunch of food for a bunch of people and then engage in trade and you mm-hmm. use your money from other stuff to get it. So, so, but when you, when you, when you talk about trade in at the country level, well, now you're, there's a, at least when times are not going well, there is a sense of tribalism hmm. and i think the the sense of us versus them which which is it's it's a real thing and it's it's easy i think and i speak i'm speaking for myself and not just people like the elites in general i mean we are you know we are fortunate enough to by any definition of the measure we're we're elites you know i feel fortunate in this respect to have grown up Kind of on the other, at least relative in the United States and this side of the coin, relatively poor and in in a, in a manufacturing area that has been devastated by by what has happened. But there, there, you get a sense where you know. So today, I like you and I can fly around the world and go different places and feel like we're citizens of the world. Mm. But but when you're when the vast majority of people never move farther than thirty miles from their hometown and don't have that exposure and have the immediacy of the pain, the the, the instinct is to to kind of circle the wagons and it's us versus them. And, and I think you're seeing a lot of that. There's this, um, there's this experiment in economics that I think is fascinating. And I, I haven't seen it called upon to explain what's going on with Brexit or Trump or any of these things, but I think it's really enlightening and it's called, it's called the ultimatum game. And basically the, the way it works is it's two players. The first player receives a sum of money and, um, proposes how to divide the sum between themselves and the other player. And the second player 
has has just one thing they can do. They can either choose to accept or reject the proposal. Now, in a perfectly rational uh, setting, if the second player gets anything, they should accept it. Uh, so let's say there's, 10, there's $10 and I'm the first player and I offer you one and I get to keep nine. You should accept that because that's a dollar that you're otherwise not going to get, right? But what's interesting is that the outcomes of, of, of this research experiment is that there's a sense of fairness that's inherent um, and people get really pissed off when they feel that it's not, it's not being fairly divided. They don't care that on balance uh, uh, that that's a dollar they're getting that, or $10 that together we're both getting that they otherwise wouldn't get. They feel like they're not getting enough of the, the, the pie and uh, they will choose if they really feel it's not fair to reject it. And this, this, I think it's interesting because I feel like in a number of these instances, when it comes to things like trade, uh, the people that are voting for some of the more extreme candidates or to remove themselves from the EU, they are feeling like it's it's not being fair that they're not getting a fair deal. They're not get they're not benefiting from this. So uh, yeah, sure, maybe everyone on balance is benefiting, but I'm not. So why not just burn the whole thing down? I I think that that's really insightful. And just to back up, we're talking about trade a lot here, and I I think just. There's no question. There's lots of factors going into uh, mm. Brexit, going into Trump, but like, and not all of them are are like being anti-trade. I think that's just one, the one angle we're focusing on. Just to be clear, um, yeah. And I think we're it's we're a big one, though. It, it is. It, well, just to go back to my my talking about kind of the deal between the government and, and industry and, and labor is, you know, especially in the United States. Uh, uh, you know, I know we're starting at Brexit, but in the United States, this idea where the government kind of secured uh, markets for industry, like whether it be through free trade or through the, through massive military spending to, to keep, to, you know, to, uh, make sure the markets were, were addressable, uh, whether it be in Europe or Japan or later South Korea after the Korean war and, and things like that. And, and Southeast Asia. And so in meanwhile, industry got to make a lot of money there. And in the meantime, the deal was they employed lots of people and they employed them at, at, at relatively well-paying jobs that were stable and, and, mm. and secure. And they also provided security in the United States, like in the, through health insurance and, and, and unemployment compensation, all those sorts of things. Like mm. that was the response of the corporations in other developed countries that, um, frankly didn't have to spend money on, on the military and probably had a different cultural approach to, to the social safety net, which is a challenge <laughs> in the U.S., I would say, you know, they also they socialize that aspect of it. But but still, the general idea of, of this trade off was there. And the big and all the other thing is, is both corporations and labor paid a lot of taxes, like the lowest mm. tax rate for individuals in like 1960 was 20 percent. Which is which is well up the the scale now. I think the highest now is like thirty eight percent. The highest then was ninety percent. Mm. I and mean, not saying that like that's a great thing, but but that's just the that was the trade off that was going on. What happened though with in the seventies in particular was, you know, I think they're they're really th you know the 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 rise of of airlines that could go across the Pacific in particular. First, the 707 was the first one, but but the 747 was really the big one, and it could also carry freight. The rise, uh, 1964 was the first trans-Pacific telephone cable, and then 1968 was the standardization of, sh of shipping containers, which mm -hmm. which were invented in, in the early 60s by, by uh, a guy named McLean, uh, really transformative. And what this did was it made, historically, up until then, trade had been about making stuff in your domestic market and selling abroad. Mm -hmm. And 
that meant employing people at home and doing it abroad. And go, go back to like the colonial, the colonial, um, colonialism. Like, what was the trade? Like, like the the British Empire, for example, would get raw materials from its colonies, ship them back to the UK, manufacture them in the UK, then ship finished products back to the colonies, which had the you know, of course, they sold them for higher prices. They got to you know get you know get lots of money to fund all their wars. Like it was, I mean, it, it, there was. That that's the way it worked in the U.S. after the 1950s. Is the same thing. The U.S. was a net exporter, and yes, they were building up Europe and they were building up Japan. But and and Europe and Japan became you know they, they started exporting goods as well. But the idea, this model of building at home and shipping out, was still the core of trade. Mm. And 19 the 1970s inverted that, and in a way that was really different than the way trade had functioned before. And what happened was. Stuff was designed in the home market in the United States, for example, but then the actual production could be outsourced, especially to Asia. And first, the various rims of the countries, and this really, you know, Taiwan certainly benefited from this, but then once China started to open up, like that really supercharged it. And now the stuff could actually be produced in China or, or, or Taiwan or wherever, and then ship back to the U.S. And now that was actually really a great thing for humanity. It really was. And it was a great thing for humanity because if you set aside tribalism and, and nationalism and, your, and patriotism or boundary, whatever word you want to use, and they're not necessarily all – they have good and bad components as, as all things do. Mm. Billions of people are lifted out of poverty. And, and it's difficult to – I, I I obviously wasn't there, but I, I've I've talked to some people, and I know just I know just a fraction of to know how unbelievably brutal and awful in China, in particular thing things were, like particularly after the Cultural Revolution, just mm-hmm. like just awful, and and like awful to the extent that if people could even start to internalize to a tiny bit how awful it was, like it would almost transform this whole thing to appreciate the way that like humanity was being violated in a very real way and it's, and it's not anymore and yeah. and billions of people lift out of poverty by getting these jobs and then people in the u.s benefited by one vastly cheaper products and more products and two the 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 exchange all the, the vast majority of the value was still kept in those companies in the u.s but that's where we get to the problem was was how those profits were distributed so two things like like shipping containers airlines and uh, telephone cables, like boil it down, all of a sudden you have order of magnitude increase in the movement of ideas, yes. of people and of goods. And I think your your selection of those three things, I, I mean, that, that was exactly what I read when I saw that. I, I think um, it's worth explicitly calling out. Now, as to the point that you just made then, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that the extent to which humanity has been en masse absolutely absolutely transformed as a result of this and transformed on the whole on average for the better the lifting out of poverty i also think on better that- on better but better by a massive scale it's almost hard to comprehend the degree to which humanity as a whole is less poor than any time in human history like by a huge amount and and order of magnitude in the same way so that movement of ideas of people and of goods has has 
as and and that more so than anything else is like at a high level this a fantastic example of this argument for trade and i think you're also i mean i don't even think i you are right in stating that a lot of the benefit accrued to the folks to to these organizations these companies that were based in the developed world because they were the ones that were orchestrating all of this they were the ones that were profiting but one of the one of the themes that has come up time and time again on this podcast is don't you cannot look at things on average and so while uh, american companies may have benefited dramatically the ownership of those companies has been relatively tightly concentrated and i would say continuing to only get more more concentrated it's been yes america on average has benefited but if you look at it if you start to dig into the different demographics it's it's really hurt it's hollowed out that middle class that used to have uh that used to to do the jobs that were effectively exported um yeah. overseas no i think one of the most fascinating graphs about this sort of time period is if if you look at the the increase in growth or wealth or or income or or whatever measure you want to use for the Mm. world as a whole. Mm -hmm. Basically, everyone is vastly wealthier than they were before, except for the developed world's middle class, Mm. which is which is at best level. And so you have this weird you have this thing where you have it's high, 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 dip, high again. Where you have like the the you know the 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 upper class in in developed countries. Mm. And yeah, this is where like and the, re- the the reason this matters is if you were to approach this as a math problem, which is always the temptation to do, and we exactly what you said, looking at things at, at averages, there really is no conclusion other than this is a good thing, both in quantity and in the number of people affected. It is a good thing. Mm. the The problem is, it, it, from a empathetic standpoint, there are people whose lives have been upended and, and you can sit here and say well the lower middle class or even the in the united states are still better off than those workers in china who are mm. much richer than they were and that's true on an objective basis but people don't experience the world objectively they experience the world relatively to to what they knew before and what their parents experienced and their expectations mm-hmm. of, of the world and the reason this matters is not just because you we should care but because they vote right well that's the interesting thing like if you take this if you take this demographic that we're talking about if you look at it across the if you look at it across the population of the planet it's relatively small but the the wrinkle i guess you could say from the perspective of optimizing for all of humanity is that they actually make up a majority of or a of at least a plurality of people inside these uh countries that have been organizing that have been the leaders in um making all this happen like like so many of the the global leaders uh from a from a business perspective but even from when you think about it from the perspective of politicians pushing for trade so many of those organizations are based inside these wealthy countries and if they pull back because this middle class has been hurt and then they don't feel they're being helped they they're doing their version of playing the ultimatum game it could start to it could like they start pulling out the foundations on which all this trade is happening it could all start to come undone well that's almost an optimistic thing because i think the bigger concern is is uh, I, again i know like 
I, you and I are, are, are probably just as guilty as everybody mm. else. But it's, it's this, you, you look like, and this is, this is almost like, I probably said this at the beginning of the podcast because, and you, you kind of uh, warned me about this in the article as well, which I appreciate. Like, I'm not necessarily saying Brexit is a good thing. Uh, there, the the costs are 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 massive, and the, there's a lot, a lot of uncertainty and and all these sorts of things. But th- what what concerned me about kind of the response to it was the unanim. I can never say this unanimous unanimity in okay. the conviction that one, this was a bad thing, and two, how stupid and misguided or worse, the people who voted for it are. And the reason that concerns me is because what you just said is, what if what if corporations start to pull back from trade because people are upset from it? I don't think that's going to happen. My concern is that the, the, the corporations and the political class continues to pretend like these people don't exist and leaving no other outlet for for them to express their their concerns about what's going on. I mean, at the end of the day, I suspect. I mean, uh, that that Brexit was their first chance to actually vote against this change in the world order, and they did. Like, and it didn't really matter whether it was going to hurt them or not. And and like, I don't have any money in the stock market. Of course, w- that trickles down. That affects everyone. Mm-hmm. But that's not real to people. Like, what's real to people is like the whole system is screwed. Like, my parents were way richer than I am. I can't get a job. I'm stuck in, the, in these, these 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 small towns. And yeah, maybe the future is is international and London and, and, and opening to immigrants, all sort of stuff. But it doesn't seem very great to me. Oh, finally, I get a chance to vote on this. Leave. Yeah. Finally, I get a chance to vote on this, Trump. Yeah, I know Trump's an idiot and and would be a terrible president, but what do I have to lose? I I think that characterization is spot on. And fr- I frankly, think- I sorry, one more thing. Like I I if Trump actually had like his his policies, whatever they may be, this kind of like reflexive make America great again and anti-trade, and he mm. wasn't such a buffoon, and he wasn't such. I, I actually think he would get more support were he not like doing this stupid thing in racist remarks and stuff like that. I'm not sure that helps him because if anything, like I, I could see that platform resonating more broadly. He's, he's limiting himself to the, to this rump that, that is obviously extremely objectionable for all the obvious reasons. Yeah. And, and maybe that's true. And I think that's, uh, that's possibly reflected in the rise of Sanders on the left. But I also think that, and, and, and you read this in terms of the, the, the Brexit voters that, that voted to leave as well, that they're often out in the towns or whatever. And I, I think I don't necessarily, th- uh, I mean, I, I like to th- see or try to at least find the good in humanity and it's probably not going to be universally true, but I think that part of the reason um, these, uh, these policies are resonating to some degree is not because people are fundamentally racist. It's because they are reflecting. Uh, it's it's almost like a correlative argument that's sticking in people's minds where they want to go back to the way things were. And the way things were didn't involve all these immigrants that have come in and they associate the immigrants coming in with taking their jobs and, and all these kinds of things. And well, it it's it's almost like well if we take away the immigration if we stop all of that then maybe that will help us get back to where we were like i i wonder if you dig deep down into the psyche uh 
like there's some there's some desire to go back to the way things were before all this change happened back when things were better like you said back when you this relative experience when you found out from what things used to be like from your parents and your grandparents yeah we shouldn't sugarcoat it there's clearly yeah. some sort of like yeah there is racial components going on whether you know it, it, it's it, like let's just let's let's say say what it is mm. It is interesting though, because the, the the connection I would draw between kind of the 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 Trump thing and the, and the Sanders thing is is a desire to like the world like it was like a, a, I put it in the article like an like an honest pay for an honest day's work mm -hmm. you know and and one of the things that's certainly objective about Trump is that it's, it seems to go to a world where that was very favorable for white men in particular. Uh, like it, the thing that you always forget about looking back to the good old days is one, they're never as good as you thought. And two, they were usually good for a certain segment of the population mm -hmm. and, and no one should want, want to go back for that reason alone. But two, if anything, the Sanders thing is let's go back to the, let's go back to the 1950s, but make it good for everyone. Right. It, which is, Certainly, I think better than let's like, make it good for white men again. Uh, and again, I'm vastly overgeneralizing. Uh, you know, uh, I, I get that, but just kind of this, there's, there's, there is this howling. This the deal was broken. That's I guess what I'm getting at. Like you had a system where government and and industry and labor was a system, and and the labor part fell fell through the fell. Into a hole yeah. in the ground, basically. Yeah, fell through the cracks. Totally. And once that happens, how can there not be a knock-on effect? Like that. Like it, it, that's. You can't just pretend seismic changes to the order of the way things work happen, and nothing else happens. There's going to be something else that happens. So, so this is this is what's interesting to me about uh, about the the whole thing and your characterization that. The, the universal kind of condemn, condemnation of the Brexit without thought and then your characterization of actually this might be a good thing because it wakes up, um, I'm going to use inverted commas here, elites to uh, the fact that there are a whole bunch of people that are hurting. I, I kind of agree with both of those things. I think the, I think in general, the Brexit thing is bad because it's probably going to, uh, to some degree, stimmy this free movement of trade and people and ideas. Like, like, uh, at the same time, I think you're absolutely right that, that there are a lot of folks who have benefited from this new world order dramatically and they've done so without reference to the cost that it has imposed upon uh, other people that they live with. And it, it reminds me of something that, um, that it kind of, it was something I learned throughout and um, after business school, um, and it's a longer story, which we won't get into, but it boils down to this, that the best way to be greedy is to be generous. It's kind of the inverse of the ultimatum game. If you, like, if you, if you take advantage of people for too long, or you have, uh, like, you're, you're in a society and too many people are suffering, and you're doing well, th that story never ends well. But if you start to think about, actually, if I want to keep benefiting in the long run, I have to make sure that everyone around me at least isn't suffering, but is preferably doing quite well and feel uh, they equally feel invested in this society that, that I'm building and that we're working towards. Like, that's the best way to make whatever it is you're doing sustainable. And when people like Warren Buffett start talking about their tax rates and how they shouldn't be paying paying 
uh, less tax or have a lower tax rate than their secretary. I don't think someone like Warren Buffett is saying that because he wants to pay more taxes. I think he's saying that from a deep recognition that in order for people like him to continue to do well in the future, there, there has to be a minimum level of everyone around doing well as well. Sure, but but it, that has to actually be manifested in in not just like sentiment and like mm-hmm. actual. Like, oh, like, absolutely, and that and that's why I agree with 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 your statement that this Brexit thing, while uh, while it's it's bad, yes, and there are many bad things. That if it serves as a wake up call, and if Trump serves as a wake up call to the fact that you can't leave this many people behind, or they're going to they're going to burn everything down, I think you're spot on. Beyond just waking people up, the the question I have is key to that old deal, that old structure, is kind of the role of government was to, in many respects, make life easy for industry and then in turn industry took care of their workers Mm -hmm. and then everyone kind of paid for it and my contention and and if we're moving into this new sort of world like so what's the what's the the new world like one of the things we've talked about with with like with like tech and i wrote tech i don't mean tech like like business productivity software i mean like we've talked about consistently that Tech is every industry. It's going to be every industry. It's going to infiltrate every industry. It's going to, and not just like they're going to write software applications to make what they do now more productive. It's going to transform the way things work. Like Amazon is transforming retail, just to take an obvious example, or or the way that ride sharing and Uber is transferring transportation. You know, like just fundamental restructuring of the way things work. And one of the conditions we've talked about here is the massive returns that come to that these these markets there's much more of a tendency towards winner take all because many of the the geographic and and physical constraints mm-hmm. on how big you can get are being removed and the last thing that the industries of the future need is government helping them right and so like the posture of government needs to be different it needs to be much more focused on people on, on individuals and helping and empowering them like and so if you like I, I wrote it I, I drew it as like a triangle and if you think about it like government the, if it's like a weather vane was kind of in the past system was pointing towards and supporting corporations and that meant getting free trade deals and building up open one single markets like the EU and stuff like that all of which benefited industry with the assumption that that would trickle down to the workers and everyone would be happy but in a world where where there's already so many winner take all and the the whole world is your market the industry doesn't need help it doesn't and and the government needs like there needs to be a real pivot in mindset towards direct yeah. empowerment and support of people and by all like what if anything a check on on the overwhelming power of these companies and industries. That's really interesting. So I, I, you wrote it and I read it, but I didn't internalize it until I heard you talk about it just then. And I, I think that the insight here, and I think this is, this is potentially, uh, I know this is kind of where we started, but I think this is the, this is one of the differences between the way that, um, 
the US government has functioned and perhaps some of the more European governments, or even if I think about my own country, the Australian government has functioned, where you characterize it as the government is function, uh, is focused on helping industry and industry will, will uh, um, industry, if industry does well, then all the people that are working for the industry will continue, will do well as a result. They'll get their health benefits and so on. And I think that uh, the 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 way that tech is working, the winner take all, the fact that these these companies don't need to employ lots of people in order to be successful, and how that underlying assumption has changed, and now as a result of that, government uh, needs to stop stop focusing on making life easier for industry and potentially like I, that that point you made just then is also really interesting about actually thinking about making sure that these winner take all um organizations are, are operating in a way that's beneficial to everybody but then um putting more of its focus on people i think that's really powerful and and like the the way we've got here like really helped me internalize it one of the challenges i think will be is, and this is something that's come up a bunch in the past few episodes as well, is the nature of culture, which is just like what you're describing when you start to talk, um, when you start to talk to a typical American about it, or, or you think about the typical discourse, the word socialism, whether applied correctly or incorrectly, so often comes up and, and successfully because like that kind of thing was not what worked in the past, but the fundamental assumptions have changed to the extent that perhaps the way that um, the way that societies think about the role of government needs to change as a result. The vast majority of people who call things socialism in the U.S. have no idea what socialism actually is, and the, and the, the I and everyone else uh, in, in pretty widely are object to that. Like we don't that, that the U.S. should be. Well, some people maybe aren't. The U.S. should like be nationalizing certain industries or running them uh, as as a as a government owned monopoly, like a utility or something. like Right, that. exactly. But let's be super clear about what that is. So, so necessarily supporting the individual is not socialism. Oh, um, I, I agree. I, I'm. I wasn't saying it was socialism. No, you were calling I'm, out people who who who, who you, use it as a sword. When you bring up this kind of suggestion. That the the word socialism gets applied immediately, and it's 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 viewed as an anathema. Right, right, right. It, which it, which is unfortunate because it's also wrong. Mm. Um, number two, though, I, I don't think the U.S. is different. Like the U.S. is different in, as far as like things like healthcare, no question. But at the but leave that aside for just a second. When you think about like what what is the responsibility. Uh, of 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 government, I, I, and again, I think if you if you really look closely at, at European governments, they've been very aligned with helping their largest industries and largest companies succeed, whether that be uh, internally, externally. Like there's been a very close relationship between government and, and and industry. And part of the pivot that I think needs to happen from a government perspective is not just the social security issue, small s social security mm-hmm. issues mm-hmm. of healthcare and and unemployment conversation and and all those sorts of things it's also the enablement angle where the the government needs to be much more focused and much more focused on, on enabling individuals to be entrepreneurial to do new things to create new sorts of opportunities which by the way are vastly more possible thanks to the internet than they've ever been before and and, and so it's not just about social security it's also what is the government focused on on pushing and propagating through its policies and in this area i would argue 
European European countries broadly are way worse than the U.S. at this. Like the the when it comes to regulation and red tape and what it takes to actually get a business off the ground. I, I mean, I would agree that they are, but I would say that the reason they are is uh, so. I think it's a spectrum, right? And I think if you look at these governments and the order of priorities and the priorities of the voters, that that if you were to characterize countries like Australia and Europe, that they would put the priority more on. Um, uh, on doing exactly what you're saying, which is enabling the government, enabling and looking after individuals. And I think that's why things like um, government provided education and government provided healthcare exist in those countries. And they don't, I'm I'm being broadly speaking, because they do to a certain extent, but they're much less the case in the US. And the reason why the regulation is greater in Europe is, again, because the priority is on looking after and protecting the individuals as opposed to making life easier for government. See, I I, disagree because I I think that those of a huge number of systems, including most public education, Hmm. is geared towards making suitable employees for large companies. But isn't that enabling? I mean, it's been I think it's been geared towards enabling individuals. And historically, that has meant that they have to go work for large companies because that's where a lot of the jobs are. Right. But that, that, but again, th- th- that means the, the focus of your of economic policy and all these sorts of things is a, is ultimately about supporting large companies and the restrictions that they are is like making sure you can't cut off employees and you, and you and it's hard to fire people and stuff like that. The, mm. the entire focus is about keeping people in jobs. And to me, that's very different and, and results in very different policies than, than helping people create their own jobs. Like that's just a very, because any sort of policies that's meant to support employees under some big boss by definition, is going to limit other bosses who want to rise up. I, I, I totally agree. I, I think we're probably agreeing more than we think they are. I think the difference, perhaps the difference of opinion uh, boils down to the fact that the underlying assumption around the best way to support individuals has changed and maybe not all government policy has caught up with it. Whereas in the past, you you write laws to protect individuals from being fired and so on. That that made life harder for the for businesses, but better for individuals in countries where those protections have happened. Now, I, I agree with your point about the world changing and that going and working in these big corporations is actually now more risky than it seems because they're probably not going to uh, do as well. And the way that governments that want to support individuals need to change their thinking is by enabling them and letting them go off and do their own thing. I, and I don't think most governments have caught on, caught on to that fact yet. And I think your point around them focusing on doing this is spot on. So, Well, I, well, was, I mean, I, it's almost like, but I, there's, there's so much in that language you use, like governments haven't caught on, they haven't changed this. Like mm. we spend a lot of time I, 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 I have on Stratech and we have on this podcast talking about the power of culture mm-hmm. and how things get entrenched in the way they ought to be. And it gets to the point where things become so – the status quo becomes so entrenched that you stop even questioning it. Mm-hmm. And if anything, this is what I was pushing back against in the response to Brexit. Like it, it, people weren't even willing to countenance the possibility that there might be any upside in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Like uh, there's this guy like stalking me on Twitter, like talking about how ideological I was, and, and like you, I looked at his Twitter stream, it's all like just way off, you know, like oh, oh, how bad all the all the we voters are, you know, it's a terrible thing, blah blah blah. Like I'm not sure if this individual even could even countenance a, a sliver of possibility that there might be some sort of upside here, like whether that be 
you know, like they, people are like, oh, Britain has to write all these new laws of 40 years. Th- I agree. That's a real, that's a r- big problem, right? It's going to mm-hmm. take a lot of effort. They're going to be distracted. There's probably going to be a recession. All this, if, if indeed it goes through, which they're saying, you, you know, may, it may or may not. Yeah, that's a problem. It's also an opportunity because you get to rewrite the laws. You get to rewrite the, the laws with the context of the modern economy, with the context of globalization, with the context of how the internet is fundamentally changing the world, with the context of the, the potential to open a business where you don't need scale from day one. You don't need distribution from day one because the internet gives it to you for free. Like, how can we create the conditions for those sorts of things to flourish in, in, a, way, in a way where the laws written 40 years ago couldn't have even imagined? I, I, I mean, I, I. It's impossible to argue with that, and I, I think it is a very good case for the upside of what just happened. Um, I think, I, I think my concern would be if you look at the politicians uh, who were supporting the Brexit, uh, who were, yeah, who were <laughs> architects a, of this. It's a big fly I, in the ointment. Yeah, I, I, I don't think, and I, and the, the, and the people who are voting for it, I don't think that they were. Um, that, that, that this was supported on the basis of what you just said. And I mean, I hope that's exactly what happens, that they take this opportunity to reset. And like, you, like you're right, every crisis is a massive opportunity. They could, if they're really being smart about it, take this opportunity to like revisit all these elements that you just described. My concern is it's coming from a bad place. Um, the people who supported it weren't supporting it for those reasons. I, I don't think I've heard anyone state them other than you just then. And uh, people are hurting. I don't think that's what you're going to find comes as a result. But I, I, I hope you're right. Right, but but we're not talking about a dictatorship here. Like all, even all the people who who lost. Like at the end of the day, everyone's going to be involved in in in, in doing this, right? Mm. So like, if you get to a point where everyone's like, oh, "Well, it is what it is." Again, it's you not know, even sure it is what it is, but suppose they they submit or the Article Fifty or whatever it is. Yeah. Like once it is what it is, even the people who voted to remain will have a very high stake, and uh, in in they have no choice but to build something new, right? So to say that the people who hated immigrants are going to be writing the future laws is not that's 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 just that's not the way it's going to work i i no you're right i'm not i wasn't saying that but it looks like yeah okay i mean i i think i think i i agree and I, i'll i'll say again i hope you're right you know, let me well let me be clear i'm being super this is a i'm i'm clearly i'm being optimistic and this is it's and it, it's a silver lining I, I i make no mistake i guess the the biggest thing that i hope the the biggest takeaway or the biggest impact that I hope this article has is not that Ben Thompson thinks Brexit is a good idea. I I very much understand all the problems with it. The loss the loss to the single market is from an economic perspective is a problem. The impact on on, on the British financial institutions, which pay a ton of taxes that support all the people who w- voted to leave, is a big problem. The issues with Scotland and Northern Ireland are massive problems that mm. no one seems to have thought about before before the election, like. Th- on balance, uh, how can you not agree that that this is hugely, hugely problematic? Mm-hmm. The concern, the concern that I have, and what I, that I hope I'm at least triggering in people who read that article and listen to this podcast, is in the haste to declare this is without doubt a bad thing. How many implicit ins- assumptions are in that statement and in that haste to certainty? And how many of those 
underlying assumptions that you don't even think about. And it's like culture. It's like the decisions that were made many, many years ago. But they were decisions that were made in a world that just fundamentally worked different than the world that worked today. And the wake-up call, in my estimation, is, is not to think about the people who are, who are suffering, although certainly that would be a welcome change of pace. The wake-up call is to wonder if the world is changing, if the internet has the impact that you and I both think it is, what else will necessarily need to change? And what are the ways we can change it without going through a revolution? I mean, this was a revolution. Right. The, the, fortunately, it was by ballot box, not by guillotine. Mm-hmm. I, this this is exactly what happens every. This is this is exactly what I'm concerned. We've been about. talking about it for the whole yeah. entire run of the podcast that there's right. gonna be there's gonna be a, a backlash. And any time that too many people are benefiting at the expense of too few, it always comes back. And again, the other thing about this that makes it so tricky is the, the the whole thing with inequality is it's so often framed as as villains, right? Those evil Wall Street folks or immigrants or whatever. And it, it, it taps into this us versus them sort of thing. Mm-hmm. What is so problematic about the inequality that exists today is it's not due to villains. Like, it really isn't. It's due, like, yes, there have been major issues, like the global financial crisis, like that. there's clearly villains, and, like, make no mistake. But there's been structural changes to the economy where the inevitable result has been inequality. And yet, and, and yes, to some extent, people could have acted more altruistically and better to have made the effects be less, but that it would it would have mattered on the margins like the, the the fundamental structure of the way society works and and industry works was was shifted in the 70s and here's my other concern james like that was one shoe globalization what happens when the automation shoe drops i mean people think about automation think about robots and factories automation is like paralegals Automation is like accountants. Truck Automation drivers. is all these white collar or yeah, truck drivers, very well paid, you know, thought of blue collar, but earns just as much as any other white collar worker uh, uh, on average. It's in 29 of the 50 states in the US or something like that. It's the largest employer. Like it's the most common job. No, exactly. And, and like, so if we don't start dealing with this and, and challenging our deep held assumptions that we don't even know exist and start thinking about what is a new world going to look like, not just from a, a, a narrow industry perspective, but from a systematic perspective, like at some point, like it's, it's not going to get better. We, the, there is no putting our heads in the sand on this. If we put the heads in the sand and just like, imagine Britain goes, reverses it, like parliament votes it down or, or they just never send it. Right. It's just kind of like, let's pretend that never happened. Right. The question still remains there'll be another outlet right well it's not just that this structural problem remains and the structural problem is going to get worse once automation really starts to arrive and the other thing the the truth is the 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 death of like manufacturing or at least employment is only part in globalization a huge part is increase in productivity like Mm. like some people say it's even it's even more than globalization. The impact on employment and stuff has just been the the factories have gotten way more productive and need less workers to produce the same amount of stuff. I feel like this is a pretty good point at which to leave it. Yeah, oh. this is what I want to take away. Like, I'm not arguing that Brexit is good. I just want people to think. Yeah. Like, 
and and to not just like blindly jump on Twitter and say, oh, this is terrible. Oh, look at those racists voting against voting against the EU. Like there's th- that's cheap. It's and it and it doesn't. It's pretending that there isn't a problem here. There is a problem, and I'm not saying I, I put a bunch of solutions in there. I'm not saying they're the right solutions, but they at least like we need to start getting serious about thinking about this stuff. Yeah. We do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on that note. Yeah. But that, yep. Uplifting. Uh, <laughs> uplifting. Start clapping like last week. Ending <laughs> note. I think that's probably it. Anyhow, it didn't start raining, but uh, I, I think I got. I think I got myself all sweaty getting worked up there at the end. <laughs> happens on occasion it does it does anyhow uh well so that was the uh last week was a new world order we call it an old world order um i want to go with the guillotine line we'll see how it goes nice sounds good (laughs) i'll talk to you later see you mate bye-bye